Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 99. Have you thought about what authentication system you want to use for your Python project? Should you use an existing Python library or a third-party service? This week on the show, Dan Moore is here to talk about authentication systems and OAuth 2. Dan is the head of developer relations at FusionAuth. He shares advice about setting up an authentication system, setting up device grants, social login, and privacy issues. Dan also provides multiple resources to learn much more about the topic. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You reached out and you want to talk about authentication, and we had a... I guess it was just about this time last year, we had a couple guys on from a company called Oso to talk about authorization. So it's nice to be able to talk about the the other side because they they were very adamant about saying, okay, we, we need to separate these two things. <laughs> so That's great, yeah. No, I'm excited to do that. I have not worked directly with Oso, but I've definitely seen some of their stuff and done some stuff with people that are in the same space. So I'm a big fan of what they're doing. Yeah, it's cool. So. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, Fusion Auth and, and what you guys do there. Sure. So we are an identity provider is the kind of technical jargony term. But basically what that means is every application, almost every application needs to have a way for someone to uh, log in and be identified and then get some certain set of permissions. And Fusion Auth came out of this need. It was actually for a... Um, Another product that we have, we extracted that functionality and we realized every application needs this and it's just undifferentiated functionality, right? Like forgot password pages, login pages, registration pages. You want them to look like your application, but they don't add value to your app. No one says, oh gosh, you know, that login page really blew me away. They just want to get through the login page to get to your features. And so right. that's what we're offering is kind of a drop-in way for app devs, especially focused on developers who have a certain set of needs to um, add that functionality to their applications easily. Yeah. It's one of the things I think you guys mentioned uh, on some of the pages as I was looking through it. One is this single responsibility principle. What, what does that mean? Yeah. So in the context of this, you know, uh, in the context of authentication in general, the way I think of it is, in the 60s, data storage was all wrapped in with application code. Okay. And then the database was invented, and so you could separate out the two. Right. And we're starting to see that with authentication and, and other things too, right? Not just authentication, but authorization, caching. There's this realization that it is better to have one component that is really, really focused on something. And in authentication... Or with user data, I think it's even more important because you have things like the CCPA or the GDPR 
that, you know, and, and frankly, tons and tons of breaches of user data, unfortunately. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, companies need to be very careful with this data in a way that they might not be need to be careful with kind of some of the other pieces of their architecture. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think a lot of people that listen to this show are, are definitely in that range of beginner to intermediate developer. And they probably have gone through some tutorials gone through some project setup sort of stuff and maybe done a lot of it locally mm-hmm. and haven't really had to think about, okay, well, what's the next step? Like if I want to deploy this, I could maybe use built-in tools, like something that comes with Django or something I can kind of model after libraries that are kind of built with something like Flask. What What is an authorization or an authentication system like require the ones that are included with something like Django. You mentioned it already uh, that Mm -hmm. you might need a database. What are all the things that kind of come into play when you think authentication system? Sure. So first of all, I would say that all your listeners who are starting out with the Django, you know, user table and, or like Flask login or something like that, that's head down the right path, right? You absolutely should not roll your own authentication, password hashing, use a library. Okay. Don't, don't, yeah, that, not, that's the don't first thing, right? Own. And <laughs> I have written my own many years ago and, you know, I made mistakes and luckily it was for a toy application. So nothing bad ever happened. But the first thing is use a library where we start to see people say, Oh man, an auth server makes more sense is when they have one, two, three, four, five applications. And if you do that in Django, Mm. you have a couple options, right? Like you can create different user silos, which may or may not suit your needs depending on the applications or you can have one Django server be kind of like the the primary, right? And have all these other ones leverage, you know, talk to it either via something like OAuth or OIDC or some other kind of protocol. And the issue with doing that is that you now have entangled like an auth server essentially within your primary Django application. Mm. And so they might have different requirements around security or availability. They may not. But if they do, then you can take a step of like separating out that Django application and then maybe you stand up a separate Django application that just becomes an auth server. And essentially there you are. Then you're you've had you have an auth server. <laughs> it's separate. It's in your it's in whatever your technology stack is. And and that's a great place to be as long as you're okay with the surface area, the attack surface area of Django being around your being available on your auth server and it has all the functionality and features you need. If it doesn't, that's when it might make sense to go to the next level, which is a, a specialized focused auth server like Fusion Auth or, you know, Fusion Auth is not the only one out there. Newsflash, you know, Keycloak, Auth0, Okta, there's, there's a number of other options, but that, that standalone nature is kind of an evolutionary thing, right? And I would say one last thing is just like any kind of major architectural changes in any application, you can choose to take the pain now or the pain later. Okay. And where it makes sense depends on where your what your business needs are. Yeah, that makes sense to me that that you you kind of have to look at the situation, the user experience of what it's like to access all the different applications that you have, and and then also have to think about you as a developer. I just had somebody on 
talking developer experience Mm -hmm. (laughs) and this idea of like, okay, this isn't my specialty, (laughs) which is a whole other thing, right? That idea of like, okay, how do I want to manage these things? So that's cool. Like what, maybe we can kind of take a, a little bit of a step backward and talk about when you set up something like authentication using the standard user table things inside of Django, is is there a name for that type of authentication? You know, I have not seen anything around that's like standardized. I would call it kind of a the auth as library pattern. Okay. Because it's really just like it's an it's it's entirely enclosed in your application. Right. Okay. And then there are lots of standards and and one of the things that we wanted to talk about today is is OAuth. And maybe we can talk about like kind of why that came to fruition and, and kind of where it's at as far as uh, advantages to uh, some some systems that are like that. Sure. Where did OAuth come from? Yeah. So, and actually, I want to be kind of careful here in case anyone listening to your podcast is pedantic. OAuth is an authorization protocol, but layer on top of it is something called o- OpenID Connect, which is... OIDC, right? OIDC, okay. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they really go hand in hand. Like, it's very... I have not seen too many situations where you have OAuth without OIDC because typically you want authorization and authentication to be connected if not you know unitary okay yeah but so basically oauth came out of this problem of people wanting to allow applications to access their data and so this is in the kind of 2000s and the way that it happened <laughs> is so suppose I have an application that is like an adjust book application and I want to allow it to access my Gmail contacts. Okay. And back in the 2000s, I might, the adjust book application might have popped up a little, you know, form that said, please enter your Gmail username and password. And then it would yeah. use that to connect to Gmail and they would get the contacts and would bring them back. But users, quickly realized that, and I don't know if there was a specific incident that caused any kind of realization, but basically once someone has the username and password, they can do whatever the heck they want with it. And not just them, but anybody who gets access to their database. Yeah, And that's obviously a major security issue. And so OAuth came out of this idea of we need to ha- solve this problem of secure delegated access without handing over kind of the, the whole enchilada, so to speak. Yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna say enchilada too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, one of the famous ones was uh, Path. I think hmm. that kind of was in the news. Was like a social network that that ended up, you know, having that sort of thing where you, you gave them access to it because they wanted to mm-hmm. grow the network, right? And and share it in that way. And it's kind of a been a, a wake up call in some ways. Definitely. So were these engineers at like particular companies thinking about it or was it like an open sort of standard? I mean, hence the the name. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is, and you know, I'm not a tech historian. That's okay. No, I mean, my understanding was a couple large companies. Flickr was one of them I heard of, and they actually worked on kind of OAuth one first, which was a, um, if you've ever heard like two legged and three legged auth that comes from that era. And Okay. Again, I haven't done a lot with OAuth 1, but my understanding is it's a more complicated protocol. And in 
I want to say 2010 or 11, they realized that the, some engineers realized that they needed to do a new, have a new standard that remedied some of the issues that OAuth 1 had. And so they standardized a separate thing through the IETF called, which OAuth 1 was also standardized through the IETF called OAuth 2, which was not backwards compatible, which had a whole <laughs> slew of you know, just kind of differences. It, it accounted for more mobile apps. It uh, SPAs were starting to happen more. And so they kind of built, laid the groundwork for that. And one thing they did that I think was really smart, well, two things. One is they said, hey, we're going to delegate the kind of transport layer security to SSL okay. and just say, hey, do everything over TLS because that removes like a whole class of problems. And the second thing they did is they said, we're going to be extensible. And so they have over the last 10 or 12 years, we've there's been a whole number of other things that have extended that standard it, in, in some ways for things that weren't really imagined or weren't well-defined when that start, standard was first implemented. So in general, becoming more secure, more extensible, working with these kind of new solutions that have to involve like everybody owning multiple devices and the way we're connecting across the web, I guess. Uh, an example of like a new thing that I don't think that they really thought of when they were rolling it out is something that's called the device grant. Okay. Are you familiar with that or no? Do I make you a quick over? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay, cool. So basically the idea is that you can, if you have a TV or a fridge that has like this very limited UX. Oh yeah. Okay. You, like an Apple TV you, kind of thing. Exactly. You okay. may want to log into that, but you do it with your phone, which has a really sophisticated UX, but there's like this defined like dance between the place where you're logging in and the TV and your phone that lets it get right. a token, which is kind of the end goal of, all the OAuth grants without actually requiring you to log in and like click around the Apple TV, right? And enter your password. Right. Which is very painful. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It can be if you have a good password. <laughs> it should be painful. Yeah. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's, those are the kinds of things where it might pop up, go to this website and, and then you could use your mobile device to do it and for various different devices you may own. So that, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So those are grants. You... Yeah, so a grant is basically anything that's like this like set of processes and data flows that define how someone goes from logging in, basically, to this token, which is a time-bound, like, uh, you know, fixed length of time thing that is it's essentially like a username and password because it's good for things. It's a set of credentials, but it's limited extremely it can, it can and it can be limited in different ways based on the grant you go through but it's limited in scope so okay and that and that's what everybody downstream of the authentication process should actually be looking at right is that token to be like oh this this says this is dan you know this is dan's token and the to, what what I use the example of not the to do application it was um a, a contact oh a, a, an address book application Dan's yeah. address book application account wanted access to this Gmail and all it can do is read contacts and it can't send email it can't do anything else mm. but that all that can be encapsulated in the token okay and so for some of these 
TV streaming boxes or something like that, it would the grant could include like a, a certain amount of time. Like in the case of you know somebody like Netflix, where they're like <laughs> concerned about all these people that are using other people's credentials and so forth, yep. they could set like a certain amount of time or a, or like if you were to update the application or something like that, then it might require it it to log back in, what have you. So it's those are set by, I guess, the authentication server. Like there would be parameters that you would adjust for those kinds of things. So. Uh, you know, example of what might be in that token is like the tier of the service that someone had, right? Like, are they at the fifteen dollar tier or the seven dollar tier? Okay, well, I don't know if Netflix has a seven dollar tier anymore, but <laughs> you get one disc a month. <laughs> you gotta mail it back. Totally. <laughs> but I mean, one thing that's interesting, and we actually um, have a client that like is it is not Netflix to be totally clear, but is in a similar situation where they basically want you to log in once and they don't want you to ever log in again. Right, because right, unless you get your password stolen, it's a bad or, experience. Yeah, 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 it's a horrible experience, right? And Netflix is not in the business of making experiences bad, right? They want you to sit there and binge as much as you can. So there's this uh, other grant called the refresh token, and so basically, okay, how that works is when you log in, the application says, "Hey, I want a refresh token," and so the authentication server, it's called an authorization server in the parlance of OAuth, but the authentication server says, okay, I'm going to give you both a token, which is that that credential that we talked about, right, that has the information about the, the level of service and whatnot, but I'm also going to give you this refresh token. And when that time-bound token expires, you application, right, UTV, or back-end TV service probably, more likely than the TV, can present that to my to to me to the authorization server to the app authentication server, and I will tell you if this account is still valid, and I'll give you a new token each each time. So you can have your tokens, your they're called an access token, you know, five or ten minutes in lifetime, but you have this refresh token that can be good for two years. Okay because you're talking to the authentication server each time, the authentication server knows if you've logged out, if you've discontinued service or anything like that. So it's a pretty transparent thing, and it's a way for you to get a user to essentially silently re-authenticate. Nice. So (laughs) all that sounds so complex as far as like all the coding involved, and so I can kind of see why you may, as a developer, not want that to be like sitting in your lap to design and (laughs) configure right yeah well so i think i say a couple things about that right first is for everyone who's thinking oh my gosh this device grant or this this all these grants seem like they're so complicated well three things one there's a lot of documentation out there two there's a lot of open source libraries out there that will kind of take care of a chunk of this okay and i know that it was i think it was oauth lib in python okay takes care of that and then the third thing is, oh, I forgot what the third thing is. I apologize. It's okay. You mentioned OAuth lib, and as as a, I, and I'm familiar with a couple other libraries that are out there that can be added to something like Flask or added to something like Django. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you need to decide. Okay, I'm not going to create a user table and build all that stuff inside of Django or inside of something inside Flask. And I want to set up or use this other service. And that's where you could use something like potentially a lot of developers would have, 
you know, like a GitHub account. And so if they were creating a, a tool that was for other developers, they could potentially use uh, OAuth through something like GitHub, right? How does that yep. work? Yep. So in that case, basically, so you can think about kind of there's two sides to it. It, it, there's there's multiple sides, but yeah. uh, the simplest way to think about it is there's like the client that is like the thing that is wanting the data, and then there's the server that, for, for the GitHub case, it's probably just a server that's just managing identity for you, right? So yeah, you click okay. along with GitHub, and GitHub is going to, you know, basically handle the, the, the grant on its side, and then the data you're getting back is actually data from GitHub, right? So it's not like this analogy of the Gmail with the contacts and the address book app. In that case, the thing that is doing the authentication is also the thing that holds the data that you want to to get. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of other players that offer sort of, quote-unquote, login through mm-hmm. Gmail, Google, you know, Facebook, which I don't, I don't, I don't know if you would have the numbers or have an idea of like what the popularity of those things are. I feel like people probably have different opinions depending on who they would want to use as these other login services. And then Apple kind of came along with kind of a yeah. fairly heavy-handed thing yeah. with it with their <laughs> with their uh, login stuff recently. You're saying in those circumstances there could be additional things being granted by having those services uh, kind of connected, like I guess in a Facebook sense, there could be data that could be kind of two-way coming in and out. They're not only recognizing you as an ID and and managing your login name and password, but they could be providing other things like other services. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, again, like, you know, uh, back to the roots of OAuth, right? And the idea was not just am I going to log in with Facebook, but I actually want to get access to my friends. Yeah. Okay. And that's something that Facebook holds. And so in that case, Dan is going to have a different set of friends than Chris will, right? Like, you know, that's just a different. Right. But I think that that is probably a lesser use for kind of logging with Facebook and logging with Google. You know, you don't really necessarily want access to the data they're holding for you. From a developer perspective, I think offering, offering social sign-on, you know, if you're focused on developers, I think GitHub is a good one to target. If you're focused on like enterprise SSO people, then you probably want OIDC or SAML or LDAP. But the whole point there is just to reduce the friction, right? Right, Because it's a lot easier to click on one button and, oh, you already logged into Google? Boom, you come back and your application might get, you know, just like an email or an identifier from Google. But that's all you care about is the person can log in and you have something to hang their, their address book entries off of right, from in your application. And yes, you have less data about who the user is, but you also have less responsibility about that data to get back to the kind of the PII point I made earlier. Right. If all you have is Google ID and someone steals your database, that's still horrible, right? But it's not like you have, you know, first name, last name, address, anything like that. Right, which is kind of scary. Yeah. And I had thought about asking this, and I kind of mentioned it before we started, that, I'd seen a post recently kind of delving into something that you mentioned briefly of uh, the European GDPR rules. And it was like a recent ruling that was in Germany about how someone was using Google fonts 
on a website. And in that case, it was not, it would have to go to Google to grab those fonts that weren't embedded. And in that process, it was providing an IP to, to Google with those users. And they were going to like find like a hundred dollars you know, per right, instance right. or something like that. And then I thought to myself, well, I'm going to talk to Dan here. <laughs> Is this an issue that we got to think about with authentication? If you, if you're, if you developer are setting up and and maybe using a a system like you know login with Google or login with you know other U.S. entities and you're a you know a European service or something. Yes, I think it's absolutely something. You know, I always like to preface this kind of conversation with I am not a lawyer. Uh, um, but, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I'm not one either. <laughs> but I mean, I've, I've looked around at the GDPR a little bit, and I think that there's other things that a lot of European companies, uh, countries have, which is data locality requirements, which basically says, okay, if you're a German citizen, we don't want any German PII to leave Germany. And if you're using a system like Google or Auth0 is another SaaS-based provider that's pretty common, um, you need to, well, good luck talking to someone at Google. If you're using Auth0, you could talk to your account manager, and if you write them a big enough check, they probably have a way to run their servers within certain countries. I, I, I know that mm. they have some support for that. There are other solutions out there. I mentioned Keycloak and FusionAuth are a couple of them where basically you can run in your own data center or in your own AWS GCP Azure cloud that is in its own region, right? So in the German region. And then that solves that particular piece of the problem, right? Because you're sure that you're not... Because when you, when you sign up with Google, if they're holding your PII... Well, let me let me take a step back. If you sign up with Auth0 and they're holding your PII, you know they're going to hold it where they see fit, right? Because that's part of the SaaS business model is they just take care of that, right? So you need to make sure that you understand that. If you're using Google, on the other hand, uh, and you're using signing with Google and they're they're holding their data, they're holding um, some German citizens' data. It's actually on Google. To, to do the right thing with that, right? Like, you're not even actually doing that at all. Mm. You're just saying, do, do you authenticate with Google somehow? And I never see the data in Google that the user doesn't explicitly consent for me to see. So I'd actually be, in some ways, less worried about signing with Google than I would with, like, an external auth provider. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess. I mean, if, if you're already using, you know, if you're a German citizen and you're already using Google for different services than that, Hopefully that's that part of the identification and GDPR stuff is sort of contained within that. But yeah, I just thought it was interesting that it was um, <laughs> people were like complaining and up in arms on the Twitter thread and we're like, oh my God, this breaks the web. And it's like, well, okay. <laughs> there are other ways, you know, to to accomplish this stuff. But there are lots of sort of shortcuts that people have done over time that that, you know didn't ever really think about privacy, you know, and didn't ever really think about yep. that sort of stuff. And so that's, you know, in this new <laughs> era, these are things that you're going to kind of have to plan on. And so that, that, that's why I wanted to think about it a little bit. That's an interesting unintended consequence, right? I mean, I don't know anyone who did look at the GDPR and said, oh, that's going to affect Google font loading. Right. And the ease of creating a, a new app on Vercel. But, <laughs> you know, you got to kind of follow the thread. And I, I know the GDPR has been around for a, a number of years, but I think there's still like some 
things that are getting kind of fleshed out. And, and by the way, we actually, at a meeting I went to, a meetup I went to um, last year, we had a privacy lawyer come and talk to us. Okay. And there are a lot of more, a lot more states and other countries that are rolling out things that are kind of based on the GDPR. So this is not something you can kind of stick your head in the sand and, and, and ignore. It's something you need to like yeah. think about as a developer. Because Brazil's doing it, California did it. I mentioned the CCPA, but even there are other states in the U.S. that are thinking about this, these kind of things. And unfortunately, <laughs> at least in the U.S., like every state's going to be a little bit different, right? And so we're going to learn how to deal with that. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It touches on the topic of this episode and could work as a starting point for you to explore more about OAuth and OpenID Connect. It's titled, Using Google Login with Flask. The course is based on an article by Alexander Vantel. And in the course, Douglas Starnes takes you through creating a Flask web application that lets users log in with Google, generating client credentials to interact with Google, and using the library Flask Login for user session management in a Flask application, and deepening your understanding of OAuth 2 and OpenID Connect. This course is a great way for you to practice OAuth and how to leverage other identity systems for your projects. Like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. You get code examples for the techniques shown, and all courses have a transcript including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. Maybe we could take a, a diversion just kind of briefly. If someone wanted to not stick their head in the sand <laughs> and kind of try to stay on top of some of this, are there particular resources that that you go to that are, you know, somebody could learn more from in the authentication authorization world? Yeah. So, you know, Particularly around the question of privacy, there's a uh, organization that, you know, I, I won't say I'm a religious about checking them out, but I definitely have checked them out periodically called the IAPP, which is stands for International Association of Privacy Professionals. And they have some certifications and things like that. If you're more interested in kind of general authorization authentication, then there's actually an organization called ID Pro, which is stands for, I think it's identity professionals or something like that, that is more technically focused. And it, it comes a little bit more from the perspective of there's kind of two major areas of identity. And the first is employee or what they call workforce identity, which is, you know, where you log into your Mac OS box and, or you log into Gmail and you're an employee. And so you, you know, maybe you take phishing, <laughs> you take phishing uh, training and there's a level of control you have. And then there's kind of customer facing identity where you're trying to make things easier for customers to sign up and, and they have lots of choices and you're not paying them money. So they're paying you money. So you have less control. Yeah, okay. I think ID Pro comes at from more from the workforce side, but there's definitely resources and assets on that that are that are addressing both sides of that kind of identity sphere. Yeah, having worked in uh, a law firm for a little while and having to teach the lawyers there, my job was basically 
I had to learn all the applications they used and then make sure that they all understood how to use them and answer their questions and, you know, make sure they were up to speed on it. And so, you know, I wasn't a, a legal professional either, but I was just, I knew technology and could, you know, speak tech to them and, and teach them. And so there's, and then I worked in banking quite a bit. And so there's a lot of that, that idea of like, okay, I work inside this, you know, structure here that we have mm-hmm. very critical data inside of it, how an employee works with it versus, you know, how we interact with customers. It's, it's completely different hats. So I think those resources might be really good for somebody's maybe coming at, at this information for the first time. Awesome. Great. Yeah. So maybe we can go into a little bit about setting up a, an OAuth system that maybe is standalone. And we could use FusionAuth as an example. But what I was thinking about is it requires a few things. Like if, if I want to set this up just to sort of test it mm-hmm. on, a, on a local machine, it always seems to me kind of fictitious. Yeah. It, you know, because <laughs> it's not how it's going to live as an application. You know, somebody's not going to, I mean, rarely is someone going to run that server on their home computer, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what are the pieces that that it needs? Does it need a database and, and things like that? Sure, yeah. So I will say like, you know, in all fairness, there's like this huge divide, right? The first is you, you need to, or maybe I should say there's a fork in the road. Like you should decide whether you want a SaaS solution, Okay. in which case it's going to pretty much be, you know, all everything over HTTP, well, HTTPS, and you'll just be kind of coding either to their, to their APIs or to the OAuth standard, um, which a lot of these people support as well. But the OAuth standard doesn't take care of things like provisioning in the same way. But if you choose to do a standalone server that you're like, hey, I, I need to be um, in Germany and I want to run my own identity server in Germany, my identity provider in Germany, you're going to look at things like probably, um, basically, it's it's a database and some application code. It's not a super complicated application. Okay. In terms of deployment, in FusionAuth's case, I know that we also outsource some of our search capabilities to Elasticsearch. So I guess there's three parts of that uh, component is a database for storing data, Elasticsearch for derived data that's used to search identities and whatnot, and then the actual application code. Okay. You could set that up. Like you mentioned that th- there were some sort of a solution that you have that's like a community-free mm-hmm. version of it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned there were a couple other solutions that, that were out there. So you would need to set them up. Like, could you use something like Docker? Uh, yes. So most of the solutions I've seen have support for Docker. FusionAuth does as well. And so it's a Docker Compose file. And we actually have people that are running in production just using Docker Compose on a, I don't actually know their servers but some external server and they're just running docker compose yeah i mean you can think of it as it's similar to kind of like setting up a a separate database server but yeah you could use it on a a vm you could use it on okay we have people who've run fusion auth on heroku so yeah lots of options because it's just at the end of the day it's really just another app right that's what i was thinking exactly so you can package it up and you know fusion auth is running in java 
right? It is written in Java. I know Keycloak is also in Java. There are .NET specific ones. Obviously, if you run the the Django um, with the OAuth server side, that's all running in Python. But at the end of the day, it's just another app that you need to kind of keep up and running. Cool. I thought about maybe we could get into a little bit about what are examples of like where rolling your own authentication can kind of go wrong or things that you've seen go wrong. You mentioned your own story (laughs) um, kind of briefly there. Like what are some examples of where somebody can kind of get into trouble with that? Sure, sure. So I guess there's a couple of things that you want to think about. The first is that if you... Uh, let's start with passwords, right? Because, you know, we can talk about SSO all day long, but like, okay. frankly, username and password is really a um, something that is pretty prevalent. So the issue with passwords is that you want them to be fast enough when you... Well, first of all, you never want to store plain text passwords. It's like storing a plain text credit card number. You just don't ever want that. Right. So you want to, and you don't want to encrypt it either, right? Because encrypting implies that you can decrypt it and then therefore get the plain text password. And there's a great website out there called Have I Been Pwned? Yeah. Yeah, which uh, basically collects breached passwords. And the unfortunate truth is a lot of people use the same password across multiple sites. So if an attacker can get access to your database and decrypt your passwords, and then they can um, use those passwords to try to get other higher value uh, application access. So you can't store it in plain text. You can't encrypt it, which means that the answer to solving it is to hash it. And a hash, for some of your listeners who might not know, is basically a one-way cryptographic translation. So you can take the word ABC123 and turn it into basically like a string of of, uh, base 64 digits. And ABC123 will translate to one string of digits. ABC234 will translate to another one. But you can't go from the hash back to the plain text password. So... You need to make sure you do that correctly. Now, what I started off and why I kind of went through that that list is that you can't just pick any hash because what you want is a hash that is fast enough that it's not going to put undue computational stress on your server when one person does it, but you want it to be slow. And the reason you want it to be slow is that or slower than optimum might be a better way to put it you want to be you don't you do not want it to be as fast as possible because if you make it as fast as possible then you have bad people out there who have a large list of passwords and they might be trying to run it against your server and Mm. checking and seeing hey do any of these come back with a 200 okay or are these all coming back with errors and so you want it to be a hash that's fast enough that it will not bother your normal users but slow enough that it will impact those kind of attacks which are called credential stuffing so that's the first thing you want to think about when you think about the have i been pwned i'm 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 intrigued by the idea that you know a lot of services over time, it's been revealed that, okay, they did save your stuff in in plain text, Mm -hmm. which is kind of scary. But you're also saying that there are other examples of where they attempted to go at least one level further, like, oh, I'm going to encrypt this stuff. And 
the people who were able to get into the databases and stuff like that were able to find out what they were using to encrypt it and were, again, be able to turn it right back into <laughs> plain text. Has that been common? Like, I, I know there's a lot of these kind of things that have happened. In, in, is hashing going to solve that in most of the circumstances? So I'm afraid I don't have good, good, a good guess on how common that second yeah. issue is. But I will say if you can, if something can be done, there are probably people who are going to figure out a way to do it. Um, and, and hashing, you know, uh, so here's the thing about hashing. Uh, there are hashes that have had collisions and uh, there are hashes that for many times, uh, sorry, let me be careful here. You don't just hash it once. Typically you hash it okay. N times. And the reason why it's a variable is because of that kind of spectrum of making it quick for the single user, but expensive for the people doing credential stuffing attacks. I do think that hashing really does solve that, especially, and again, this is something that you would need to consider if you were rolling your own, is you want a hash that has been vetted, right? And NIST provides some, NIST provides some recommendation. There are competitions out there to like try to get better hashes for this particular problem because it's a kind of a a common problem and a valuable problem. We use PBK. 2DF, I believe, is what it's called as our default, but other good ones are Blowfish or Argon 2. And there's kind of a variety of other aspects to picking one of these or the other, but as long as it's kind of vetted by some really smart math people and preferably kind of with an open source implementation, then you're probably going to be okay to pick one of those. Okay, cool. It sounds like definitely like a, a whole rabbit hole. You, you really need to have this background in cryptography to even know what all the standards are and what 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 people are using. Do you have any ex- like stories of this stuff kind of like failing for people in other ways? You know, outside of the the breaches that we've mentioned. You mean in terms of f- like failing for people because they chose to roll their own? Yeah. So I I think that I don't have a ton of like security horror stories. Okay. I do know that a number of our clients have come to us and basically said that it's not the, they're a little bit worried about security. In fact, they're, they're fairly worried about the security, but they haven't said, Hey, we got breached, Right. but they do come and say, we're worried about security. We want it to be off our plate. And we also realize this is undifferentiated functionality and so we feel like going to something that leverages that 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 is continuing to be developed without it being us spending half a developer or a full developer to maintain and feed this thing this basically authentication authorization system is going to be valuable yeah so if you're not developing and spending those resources internally on worrying about authentication and kind of creating all that. Are there still maintenance schedules and things that you still need to be paying attention to make sure that these things are updated? Like how often would a a person who's setting this up need to look at like, okay, I need to check for, you know, security updates and, sure. and, and things like that. Is that, is there a pretty common schedule for that? Yeah. I mean, so I think uh, if you're, if you're operating it yourself, I think that's a little bit more intense 
you know, but yeah. because there are things outside of the actual auth server that, that could cause issues. But, you know, we get a pen test of our software. We pay people many dollars to, to try to break in. And, <laughs> you know, we have a policy for notifying people of security issues because no one's perfect. We have had some, nothing major, but we've had some things where uh, we needed to remedy it. And so I think that it would be similar to any other library, right? Like you can't, if you're running Python 2.7 right now, you're kind of, you're out of luck. Right. right? So you do need to kind of stay up and stay in touch with that. But the, the upgrade cycles we see are... Some people want to be kind of at the tip top of the tree because they want all the features and whatnot. Other people are more content to be three to six months behind the situation. Yeah. And then I think obviously you also, again, like any other component, you should subscribe to their security updates so that, or their their newsletter, so that if there is an issue, they have some way of getting a hold of you. If it's an open source project, you know, GitHub is a great place to go look. I know that I'm trying to think about some of the open source projects that are Fusion Auth competitors. I don't know whether or not they do anything automated, like with GitHub security advisories, but you could definitely look into that. So it's not set and forget. Okay. Definitely. But, you know, as far as kind of the day-to-day worrying an operation, I mean, I, I guess I would ask any of your listeners out there who are running their own, who are using like the role of their own system or the library, approach like when was the last time that you had your application pen tested right yeah <laughs> that makes me think sometimes about these other forms of uh pen testing where you know a lot of times it's the the human and the social engineering part mm-hmm. of it the mm-hmm. kevin mitnick stuff totally. <laughs> we moved from hawaii to to colorado and so we shipped our car and so we had to drive across and we listened to his book <laughs> and my wife was just like shocked at like all how polite people were to him yeah. and let them into all their systems and so forth. Just, you know, it, it, I and I wonder sometimes if that, that's such a big part of the, of the training, I think, you know, for security. Absolutely. I mean, you can't, like you could have the most secure auth server and, and uh, you could have the most secure auth server in the world. And if someone sweet talks their way into like, you know, elevated levels of access or letting someone else like right. <laughs> use their use, use their authentication credentials. There's not a lot you can do. I think humans, uh, I wouldn't, I, I don't like when people say they're, we're the leak, weakest link of security. I think hmm. we're kind of the point of security, <laughs> right? right? Like we're yeah. the end, <laughs> but we certainly have exploitable flaws. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> in this, in these days of, you know, remote work over the last two years. I wonder if if that's changed that landscape too somewhat because everybody needing to remotely log into these systems uh, from home computers, you know, where maybe they, a lot of organizations, you know, were not <laughs> ready for this sort of thing. And if that's changed the landscape of, of this in some ways. I think absolutely. You know, I definitely have read some things about you know people just well first of all in the early days of the pandemic like just like some of the 
huge efforts that were made by IT professionals to allow for people to to work in a way that was safe, which is you know phenomenal. But yeah. there's a lot of learned behavior around. Hey, don't click that. Setting up you know, supporting infrastructure like VPNs or other things like that, that I think, unfortunately, folks have taken advantage of. So yeah, <laughs> definitely something. I mean, and, and the truth is, I don't think it's going away because not that I'm saying we're not ever going to go back to the office, but like, I think the ability to kind of work from wherever, or at least occasionally work from different places is going to entail, you know, more sophisticated ways to authenticate people. And that's just, um, I just don't think that that's that mode of work is going to go entirely away. Yeah. I had a chance to kind of look at some of the tutorials on, on your site and there's a bunch of good stuff. There's, you know, if people want to learn, uh, you know, like, okay, I want to configure this with Django or do that sort of Docker setup type of thing. There's a, a lot of good tutorials there. But I, I got to kind of get a glance at it. I didn't completely set everything up and try it out. But I was looking at the control panel, and there's this you know whole area of there of like you know API keys, mm-hmm. and I just found it fascinating to kind of be able to look at okay, well these are all the endpoints of APIs that you want to to control, and and, and literal like on off switches for you know get post <laughs> and um, you know update and things like that, being able to like literally choose where you know where things are you know sort of authenticated and and people are allowed to kind of go it seems like a, a really powerful system and i guess it depends on how elaborate your applications are and kind of interconnecting them is that kind of the idea behind the control panel thing you really you know kind of go across maybe multiple applications and multiple areas that someone would have uh, the ability to control yeah i mean uh, so, and this is, so, so there's a kind of two pieces of fusion auth, right? And so there's like the OAuth stuff that is standardized. That is, you know, we comply with several RFCs and, and there are other providers that provide that exact same functionality. And then there's what well, we're, we differentiate ourselves. And some of that's in features, some of it's in deployment model. Um, but a big chunk of it is our developer experience. And so we have people that are using FusionAuth from, um, you know, some some are using them in kiosks. We actually have people using it in kiosks, some on site, and some at like really big multi-node installations that handle, we load tested up to like 2,000 registrations a second. I don't know if anyone's in production with that, but we think that an important part of a develop, developer experience is not just like how you as a client, like interface with OAuth and like your users can log in, but also how you're managing everything on the back end um, in terms of signing keys and new applications that you want to to set up and loading up users. And there's some other features there, but the reason why we have that kind of API key, you know, that huge matrix is because that's actually what our front end uses is APIs against an API layer. And so we're very, um, almost religious, very passionate about being API first. And we find that we kind of try to offer like the 80% of functionality that most people need. And then if you need more than that, or you need like this weird, unique thing, we let people drop down to the API layer and drive things themselves. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I hit most of the things. What I wanted to 
ask you about like staying on top of authentication generally. And we, you mentioned a couple of, of uh, resources that people can kind of follow to stay on top of what's happening in, in, in you know, standards bodies and news and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What if somebody wants to play around and, and learn more about setting up a OAuth? Do you have any particular resources or tutorials that you could point people to? Yeah. So I think that one of them is, so there's, there's two that I would point to. First is actually a FusionAuth resource called the Modern Guide to OAuth. Okay which is about 80 or 100 pages where we kind of talk about how we've seen OAuth implemented. And then we provide examples of each of the major grants with code. It's it's all Node, sorry, folks, but you should be able to translate it pretty easily into Python because it's not complicated code. It's like, here's, I'm building this request URL and here's, you know, I'm taking stuff out of a cookie and putting it back into a cookie. Okay. So that's the first one. And then the second one is a book that is called... Um, let me pull it up. Solving identity management in modern applications. Okay. And so that's not going to be, and there's actually, sorry, there's another great one called, um, it's called OAuth 2 in Action. So yeah, two books. The first is Solving Identity Management, and that's more like a like a holistic life cycle, right? From like the first provisioning to the deprovisioning of a user, but logging in, logging out, all that stuff. And OAuth 2 in Action is a great, really super OAuth focused book that kind of talks about different grants and t- and builds you actually end up building a server from scratch again apologies in javascript but like <laughs> super in-depth yeah. and uh, written by a couple people who've participated and helped create a lot of the standards and then do you have any resources for implementing uh, oauth and python yeah so i mean i would if i was going to do that i would probably start out and just if I was using Django, I would use the Django OAuth tool set. Okay. Just because that seems like that's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And 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 here's one thing that I, I want to kind of like drive home. Like, I think you kind of touched on this. Like, this is something that you need to feed a little bit, right? You need to be on top of security updates and things like that. But like, really, you shouldn't be spending a ton of time on this, right? You should like go to a well-known solution, whether that's the Django OAuth toolkit or Fusion Author or, you know, any of the other many resources that I've mentioned and set it up, like read the docs, learn how to set it up right, set it up and then feed it periodically and keep on, you know, on top of security updates. But like, the whole point of separating out your authentication <laughs> is that you can actually get back to focusing on the thing that people want to pay you for, right? Like right. again, features. back to that joke, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. features, features. Yeah. Does that, does that help? Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Great. Okay. So I have these weekly questions and I wanted to see what you think. I know you're not a, a Python developer, but are there things that you're excited about in the world of Python right now? Well, uh, so I kind of alluded to this earlier, like, so I, I cut my teeth on Perl. Okay. And so I saw the agony of the Perl 5 t- d- debacle. <laughs> and so I am kind of just super excited of that that Python's hopefully making that shift in a way that isn't hopefully they learned they learned some lessons from that. I know there's been some pain around that, but I know that I've started to see like some of the big cloud providers are like, "Hey, we're no longer supporting 2.7 and da da da," which is I think just healthy. So I guess if you maybe pick one thing, that's probably what I would pick. Okay. Yes. It's it's kind of amazing, you know, being more on the ground and watching some of the core developers and talking to them. It it they're actually kind of trying to focus on 
slowing down some of the the changes and and you know focusing on compatibility and 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 growing properly and i think there's a, a lot of good people involved in uh, steering the ship right now which i think is great so what's something that you want to learn next and again it doesn't have to be python specific sure so i am in the middle of so from a kind of an authentication perspective uh, there's there's just so much to learn uh one thing that i need to kind of touch back on is i did a blog post a year and a half ago two years ago about what's new in oauth 2.1 which basically is kind of a consolidation i talked about those two those 10 years of like standard upon standard being added to oauth to extend it yeah they've actually kind of consolidated some of the best practices around those standards and put and they're putting it into like a point release and so again it's been a couple of years since i looked at it but i, I want to go back and look at that because i think that that's just the benefit of using a standards-based system is that you get tens of smart people that are paid by companies that are paying them a lot more than i could pay them that um think about things and so that's probably the thing that i would pick okay cool do you have any particular calls to action you want to share uh, i would say it's a negative call to action. It's don't roll your own off okay <laughs> and again i just want to be cool clear to everybody i get paid by fusion off but like i don't want you to pick fusion off if it's the wrong fit for you i think that there's a ton of great options out there and i think it, as a developer it's incumbent on you to to learn and and pick the solution that's right for your problem space and again there's a ton of awesome Python libraries out there too. So if you get tempted to create table user, don't do it. Like use use something that is pre-built and I, I promise you, you'll be a lot happier. Yeah. How would people find things that you do on the internet? Sure. So I tweet a fair bit. Uh, my Twitter handle is M-O-O-R-E-D-S, more D-S. And you can learn more about FusionAuth at FusionAuth.io. Cool. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really great to talk to you. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I want to thank Dan Moore for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>